Hey, everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we entertain actually genius ideas. Today is episode number 24, and I have on Sheldon Solomon, who is a leading terror management theorist, which means that he looks at all the ways that death impacts the way that we function. Okay, so this is a set of really big ideas that I want to talk about today, or very important ideas. People who have been listening to this podcast for a while or who simply have heard me tell my story, provide a little bit of background about my story, know that death has been central to my understanding of myself and our world for a very long time. I began having panic attacks about death when I was very young was always deeply concerned with it. I think about it all the time, not in a particularly morbid way, but I'm always aware consciously. Now, Sheldon Solomon, after, and he'll tell this story in the interview, after the publication of a book called The Denial of Death in the 70s, Sheldon Solomon recognized the, and his, some of his colleagues, recognized the importance of the insights in this book about how important death is to our psychology. It affects everything that we do. And so he decided to do a lot of studies to prove it. And the things that he came up with, again, he'll talk about them, so I won't go over it now, but they basically have been able to pretty firmly establish that death lies at the core of our psychology and really, again, influences the way that we think about ourselves, about our world, how open-minded we are, how confident we are, how anxious we are, all these sorts of things. And so it's a very, very important set of ideas and something that is hard to look at, but very important to look at. And and we'll talk about that in the interview as well. You know, it's not a very easy set of ideas to sit with no matter what your beliefs are about the afterlife, you know, the fact that we die is, it's scary. It's arguably for a lot of people, the scariest thing. And for many people, they say it's not the scariest thing, but it still is the scariest thing. And there are many people who do have a sense of acceptance about death, but that's either very hard one or a little bit fake or not something that is probed at very often, you know, cause you don't want to upset it. So there's definitely, definitely a lot there, definitely a lot there to be unpacked. And Sheldon and I talk for a while. He's very entertaining. A couple of things, uh, just so you know a little bit about Sheldon. He is currently a professor uh, at Skidmore University in upstate New York, which is a fantastic school and location. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, and, and he is the co-author of The Worm at the Core which is a book that was recently published precisely about all of these insights that he has unearthed over the course of the last few decades, studying how death impacts our decision-making, our religious views, our political views, all that sort of stuff. So the book is definitely worth checking out. I will put it in the show notes and again, or you can just Google it right now and go buy it immediately because it's, it's fantastic. A quick reminder, you can find show notes at my website if you go to stephanierupert.com. Uh, they're right, their most recent episodes are right there on the homepage or you just go to podcast and, and it's all right there. So um, do check all of that out. I already recorded the interview with Sheldon and it went really, really great. And I loved listening to everything he had to say and learning from what he had to say. A uh, brief caveat, he does definitely call Donald Trump some not nice things. 
I happen to think he's correct. For those of you who may take offense to that, just walk into the insights with an open an open mind and listen, uh, I think, closely to the psychological stuff that we're talking about, we're gesturing to while we're talking about these ideas that are really important. You know, there are things I have noticed, I won't talk about this for too long, but I do, I lose followers every time I say something about Donald Trump and I'm, I'm okay with that. But the thing is, is I'm, I'm more than willing to discuss these things rationally and calmly and considerately and I'm not kicking any, you know, by expressing the fact that I think Donald Trump is a narcissist as a psychological opinion. You know, it's not, again, I'm not making any sort of condemnation about people who voted for him or what have you. And I want to be able to discuss these things. So please, you know, if you've got an issue, just raise it and we'll talk about it. Don't necessarily uh, just block me and think I'm evil or, or whatever. Um, and I have, I think, demonstrated that I don't like to sit really firmly along partisan lines. That's not something that I'm interested in. Uh, and you can listen to my podcast number 18X on the discourse around political correctness and free speech, which I think is really important if you want to understand a little bit about how I am not allied with the left, so to say. So, uh, so to speak. In, in any particular way. I just, I really like intellectual dialogue and nuance. And this is all an aside. My conversation with Sheldon is very long. So I'm going to get right into it. Here we are. Here is Sheldon Solomon. Hi. Uh, hi, Sheldon. Welcome. Uh, how are you doing? Very well, Stephanie. And thanks for having me today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I was just actually um, talking about I was just telling somebody about how terror, terror management theory exists, like they didn't know. And that just, that's always surprising to me that people, that it took us so long to figure out how important death is to us, you know? Yeah, I mean, agreed. Uh, on the one hand, um, we've been aware of it vaguely or not so vaguely since the... Uh, birth of our species. And so some people argue that, uh, you know, what marks the transition uh, uh, to, uh, you know, Homo sapiens sapien was becoming sufficiently aware of death mm. uh, to realize that it uh, was not a particularly welcome state of affairs. And so, yeah, uh, the philosophers, the theologians, you know, people sitting on the floor of a cave <laughs> many tens of thousands of years ago uh, you know, we're poignantly and painfully aware of the reality of the human condition. Mm. But, you know, and, and at the risk of sounding silly, uh, the, the psychologists are always the last one to come around. You know, the philosophers get it, theologians get it, the artists, the playwrights and poets get it. And, and then, you know, a psychologist will say, oh, I have an idea, <laughs> as if it's the first time that it's ever arisen. Having said that, though, I, I think it's quite understandable that, you know, given the work that we do uh, based on Ernest Becker's efforts, uh, particularly in, in his book, The Denial of Death, um, you know, his point is that death is so um, potentially catastrophically unpleasant that we go to extraordinary lengths to pretend that it either doesn't exist or it doesn't bother us. And so for that reason, it's not great for uh, scoring debate points 
with fellow academic psychologists. But uh, when you say, oh, I think that the awareness of death is important, uh, the most common response from psychologists and even people on the street is, well, I don't think about death that much, mm -hmm. and therefore it can't be consequential. You know, and it's not helpful when you say, well, uh, you don't think about death that much because you're repressing it. So you either agree with me that, that it's important or you disagree, in which case you're repressing it. So am I right or am I right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fun way to put it. So uh, what got you sort of onto this? Was this something you had been thinking about your whole life? It's something I was obsessed with my whole life, right? Or was, was it spurred on by reading Ernest Becker's book? Yeah, both. So um, I have a profoundly personal interest in these matters, um, given that, like you, um, I, very early on, I, I was eight years old, and uh, my grandmother died. Um, and I remember my mom saying the night before, say goodbye to grandma, because she's not going to be around. And, uh, you know, I was very sad that my grandmother had died, but I, I distinctly remember sitting there and I had a stamp collection. So I was looking at old stamps of dead American presidents. And I was like, oh, you know, my grandmother's dead and uh, that, that saddens me. And then I'm like, oh, but wait a minute, that means my mother's gonna eventually get old and die. And I was like, wow, who's gonna make me dinner? Uh, and I was like, okay, I get over that, uh, I'll go out. And then literally it, it hit me, you know, like a psychological nuclear explosion. I'm like, oh, and that means that this too uh, will befall me at some vaguely unspecified future moment. And I, I don't think I've ever been the same. I, I, I literally was terrified. And so I've been vaguely aware throughout my childhood and young adulthood that I wasn't a big fan of dying. And... Then I got a job at Skidmore College in 1980, and to make a short story long, I was just wandering through the library uh, looking for books written by Freud uh, when I saw um, Ernest Becker's uh, The Birth and Death of Meaning, The Denial of Death, and Escape from Evil uh, sitting right next to each other. And um, I thought those were interesting titles, and I... I read first the birth and death of meaning where in the first paragraph Becker says oh I want to understand I think it's he said something like I want to understand uh, why people do what they do when they do it and I'm like yeah me too and uh, then in the in the denial of death where he just says that the uniquely human awareness of death gives rise to potentially debilitating existential terror and that, in turn, uh, how we manage that terror uh, uh, influences everything that people do, whether we're aware of it or not. I'm like, wow, um, that resonated so much with me um, mm -hmm. that I literally, it changed the course of my academic as well as my personal life. I, I was trained um, as a, an experimental social psychologist, but with no background in these matters. And... Um, so I was like, oh, I'm not going to do uh, what I used to do. Uh, I'm going to study this. And so that's basically um, how we got involved. Right. And what you managed to do for this study of death, this terror management theory, was actually 
prove insofar as anything can be proved was to actually prove that these things are real right because for becker they were almost like hypotheses they were philosophical premises but you said well you know what let's put some people in some studies and you've done so many studies <laughs> yeah that's right um, so what happened is yes you you've got it stephanie so becker says uh you know in order to manage existential terror uh, that we embrace culturally constructed belief systems that he calls cultural worldviews, and that what those beliefs do is to manage death anxiety by giving us a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. Mm -hmm. And moreover, what Becker argued is that if you're lucky enough to believe that you're a person of value in a world of meaning, that's what he calls self-esteem. And... Um, and I was, and then in his books, he describes how that brings out both the best and the worst in us. And he won a Pulitzer Prize for the the denial of death, but he couldn't get a job in the U.S. or in North America. He was denounced as kind of an entertaining uh, lecturer uh, of undergraduate students, and, and the ideas uh, were also dismissed as interesting but vague philosophical slash psychodynamic speculation uh, for which uh, there is no evidence nor can there be. And at first, we didn't intend to do any studies. So we just, and when I say we, I mean my buddies from graduate school, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski, we just thought these were interesting ideas. So we're like, oh, we're going to write a paper for the American psychologist. And it was just saying, look, this Becker guy is interesting. And six months later, the paper was rejected uh, with a single sentence review. I have no doubt that these ideas are of no interest whatsoever to any psychologist alive or dead. And we were like, oh, <laughs> that's not particularly encouraging. But what it came down to is that, um, you know, in, in psychological discourse in the late 20th and now 21st century, um, ideas won't be taken seriously unless they can be empirically corroborated. Or I actually like how you put it a moment ago, unless you can prove them uh, in the traditional sense of the word, uh, which means uh, to provide evidence that is not yet wrong, uh, essentially. And so the, the first thing that we did uh, was to just do some studies to show that self-esteem uh, really does buffer anxiety. So uh, we would raise self-esteem or leave it uh, unaltered. And then uh, we threatened people with electrical shocks, which sounds pretty gruesome, but it's a good way to make people aroused and anxious. And then we measured anxiety, both in terms of physiological arousal as well as self-report. And, and what we found is, indeed, uh, when you uh, raise self-esteem, uh, people are less aroused and less anxious. Uh, and uh, that supports Becker's claim that self-esteem is essentially an anxiety buffer. Mm. And, and then what we did is to say, all right, but what about the, the more... Uh, subtle and counterintuitive, perhaps, argument that uh, that our beliefs serve to manage uh, existential anxieties. And what what we reasoned here, and in retrospect, it was pretty simple, but it took us a while to figure out how to proceed. We just said, okay, 
let's assume that he's right, that our beliefs serve to manage death anxiety. So how about if we bring people into the lab and uh, we remind some of them uh, that they're going to die? Literally, just ask them, hey, write down your thoughts and feelings uh, about uh, your own death. And then in control conditions, we ask people to write about something mundane, like listening to music or something um, really negative, but not fatal. Uh, you've been in a car crash and they have to chop off a leg. Uh, you've taken an exam. Uh, they have to yank a tooth and they don't have anesthetic. You know, you've given a speech in public and you vomit all over the people in the front row and they're not particularly pleased. All negative, but not fatal. And, and our argument is, is, well, if Becker's right, uh, then when you're reminded of your own mortality, that should make you cling more tenaciously to your culturally constructed beliefs. And we should be able to determine that by measuring your reactions to other people who either share your beliefs or who are opposed to them or, or merely different from them. Uh, um, so, for example, in the first study that we did in the 1980s, uh, we had municipal court judges uh, either think about their own mortality or not. And then we asked them to assign a penalty uh, for an alleged prostitute. And all we wanted to see, given that prostitution is considered morally reprehensible, at least in Arizona, we just wanted to see if that would affect the judge's decisions. And indeed it did. In the control condition, the average penalty was $50 U.S., and that's good because that was the average judgment in municipal court in those days. However, the judges reminded of their mortality. Uh, the average penalty was $455, which is not only statistically significant, but actually profound, nine times more punitive. And maybe more profound is that when we talked to the judges and, and explained to them what we had done, Every one of them said, look, I will tear your heart out of your chest and show it to you while it's still beating before you die, before I would admit that your stupid little death questionnaire would in any way influence the way that I adjudicate a legal procedure. And so we thought that was an incredibly strong test. And that basic finding has been replicated numerous times on lots of populations. That is more punitive reactions to moral transgressions. But that wouldn't be all that interesting if the only thing that we demonstrated was that uh, we are more negative when we're reminded of death. After all, death is a downer. Uh, so we turned right around and we did another study where we had people read a, a fictitious newspaper account of a citizen thwarting a bank robbery. And then we just said, well, how much reward should this person get? Uh, and in the control condition, it was about $1,000. In the mortality salient or death reminder condition, it was about $3,000. Uh, and uh, so and this, this basic effect has been literally replicated hundreds of times. When you're reminded of death, you have more favorable reactions to people who behave in accord with your worldview and more negative and punitive reactions to people who are opposed to them or merely different from them. And then we have one more paradigm, and then I'll shut up and we could talk some more. And that is, so now we know that self-esteem buffers uh, anxiety, 
We know that when you're reminded that you're going to die, that this engenders what we call cultural worldview defense, and that goes in both directions. And so to kind of finish the empirical circle, as it were, the the next paradigm we said, okay, so if self-esteem and cultural belief systems, if they manage death anxiety, then let's see what happens if we threaten your beliefs or if we threaten your self-esteem, because that should bring death thoughts more readily to mind. And so we borrowed a technique uh, from social and cognitive psychologists. It's just a simple word stem completion task. So uh, imagine you're in a lab setting and you see the letter C-O-F-F blank blank, and your job's to make a word out of it. Uh, well, if you've just passed a Starbucks, are they in Oxford yet? Hopefully not, but they're probably everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, you're more likely, even if you don't remember passing Starbucks, you might uh, fill that word in as coffee. On the other hand, if you've just passed a morgue or a cemetery, you might fill that word in uh, as coffin. Uh, and so we validated that measure uh, by using subliminal death primes, uh, which is flashing the word death for 48 milliseconds so fast that you can't even see that you've been exposed to it. And, and when we did that, we found that people uh, would fill in more word stems with death-related words. Yeah, and so what we then did, and uh, so we did some of these studies and others, uh, people have done some of them too, but for example, Christian fundamentalists who are shown logical inconsistencies in the Bible, uh, they have higher what we call death thought accessibility. Um, if you, and this is, it operates in the secular realm, if you tell people who believe in the theory of evolution uh, that the creationists might have a point, well, that makes their death thought accessibility go up. If you tell atheists that there may be a God, uh, that makes their death thought accessibility go up. Uh, if you tell people that they've done poorly on an IQ test or that their personality is such that they might not uh, be able to achieve their vocational goals, also death thought accessibility goes up. And then finally, what we've done is to show that if you increase self-esteem, that decreases or eliminates these other effects. And so if you raise self-esteem before you have somebody think about death, uh, then they don't denigrate folks who are different or reward people who are the same. Uh, and ditto for the death thought accessibility. If you raise self-esteem first, it attenuates those effects. And... Um, so the, the bottom line is that um, we think, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, but we're not the ones to judge, uh, but we think that those three lines of convergent empirical inquiry uh, provide a very potent empirical foundation uh, for the central tenets of the theory. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you that they're really robust. You mentioned briefly at the end there, you were talking about denigrating other people. So it's not just that we become more negative or become more positive. You also mentioned you referred briefly to uh, these social norms that we have, these cultural worldviews. So basically, we reinforce the worldviews that we have. So 
in a sense, we're reinforcing our identity, right? We're reinforcing these worldviews that give us meaning. Like, why does this process of reinforcing these things happen? And then I, I think we should unpack a little bit, like, the implications yeah. of that violence, no, no, very, right? Yeah, very good. All right, well, our, uh, our view based on Becker uh, is that it is the worldview and the self-esteem that we derive from it. That's what allows us to suppress uh, thoughts of death. And as evidenced by the fact that when we threaten or weaken the worldview or self-esteem, uh, death thoughts uh, rise to the surface of consciousness, to use a, a, a metaphor. And, uh, but good point, because basically, you know, whenever I talk about Becker or terror management theory, uh, you know, the, and the, this is as it should be. There's always two questions. So what? And how do we know if it's true? And I always try and address those questions simultaneously, although we already did the empirical paradigms. But, you know, the first thing that we were interested in is, you know, a prejudice and ethnic and religious violence. Uh, I, I like um, how... Um, James Joyce puts it in Ulysses, because you're over in, in the UK, uh, you know, we're on the page nine, because nobody's ever finished the book, but we all started it. I did finish, <laughs> but it took me 40 years. Uh, you know, the, the main character says, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Uh, and uh, our point is that, you know, when you look at human history, even from a benevolent perspective, it's not a particularly pretty picture. You know, it's one ongoing succession of genocidal atrocities, you know, juxtaposed with the brutal subjugation of designated in-house inferiors. Uh, and, you know, this raises the question uh, of uh, why? And that certainly things haven't changed that now. The only thing that's changed is we're in possession of weapons of mass destruction, uh, you know, that could reduce the earth to a smoldering heap. But Becker's um, response, and this is mostly in his last book, Escape from Evil, you know, he says it's pretty simple, and he has two uh, ideas that we find quite compelling. One is that if you take his claim seriously, then the mere existence of people who don't share your beliefs is fundamentally threatening. Uh, because if you acknowledge the validity of somebody else's belief system, whether you're aware of it or not, you're undermining the confidence with which you subscribe to your own. So if I believe God created the earth in six days, as in the Judeo-Christian tradition, I run into the Fulane and Mali, they believe that the earth is created from a giant drop of milk. Well, if the dairy people in Africa are wrong, uh, then, or if they're right, rather, then I must be wrong. And, uh, and so that undermines my own terror management belief system. All right, moreover, Becker says there's another problem, and that is that culturally constructed beliefs are quite powerful, but they're still ultimately symbolic, whereas death is ultimately a very real physical event. Consequently, he says, in a, in a, it's very lovely, although... Uh, disconcerting language. He says, therefore, no belief system will ever completely eliminate death anxiety, and therefore, there will be always a panic rumbling beneath the surface of consciousness. That's his phrase. And 
What he argues psychodynamically is that we take that residual death anxiety and we repress it. And then what we do is to project it onto other individuals that we declare the all-encompassing repositories of evil that if eradicated would make life on earth as we believe it to be in heaven. And so Becker's point is, uh, it doesn't matter if you run into people who are different, or as Virginia Woolf said in A Room of One's Own, she's like, look, uh, Will, if we don't have anybody different around to hate, uh, we'll just declare somebody. She said, we'll hate people for the shape of their nose or the color of their shirt. Um, either way, what we do when we run into folks who are different is we denigrate them. We try to convince or compel them to dispose of their beliefs and adopt ours instead. And if that doesn't work, we just annihilate them, thus proving that our God and our beliefs are superior after all. And all right, so how do we know that that's true? Uh, well, back to the lab. Uh, and um, the, the, one of the first things we did in Arizona was a very simple study. Christian participants reminded of death or something unpleasant. Uh, who are then just asked to make judgments of other individuals in the room who identify either as Christian or Jewish. And uh, what we find, the good news is in the control condition, uh, no difference in evaluations as a function of religion. However, when reminded of death first, uh, the Christian participants liked fellow Christians a whole lot more, and, and they hated Jewish people. And this has nothing to do with Christianity. So in Israel, Jewish people reminded of death. They love Jewish people. They hate Arabs and Christians. Indians in India reminded of death. They love Indians. They hate Pakistanis. That basic effect has been replicated uh, by independent researchers in more than 25 countries on five continents. I say that not to boast, but to establish the robustness of the finding. I, well, but it's not only about attitudes. And so uh, German participants reminded of their mortality. They sit closer to people who look German, and they sit further away from uh, people who look like Turkish immigrants. Um, Americans reminded of their mortality are literally more physically aggressive uh, towards individuals who don't share their political beliefs. Iranians reminded of their mortality. Uh, become more supportive of suicide bombers and more willing to become one themselves. I don't know about you, but I find that, um, again, uh, profoundly potentially disconcerting. Um, to be glib and stupid for a moment, in, the, in America, people in the United States, you know, we're not about to blow ourselves up, but we're happy to blow up other people. And so uh, at the same time we were doing the study in Iran, uh, we asked Americans to either think about death or something unpleasant, and then we just asked, how much do you support the use of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons against countries who do not presently threaten us? And the good news is in the control condition, uh, Americans said, um, fuck that, if you'll pardon the profanity. We're not big fans of the preemptive use of weapons of mass destruction. That's the good news. The bad news is that oh, when they were reminded of their mortality first, um, then they're like, yeah, uh, bomb them and then bomb the rubble. Uh, and this was particularly true of Americans who identified 
as conservatives. Uh, and um, now I could talk much more about these things, but I, I like how George Bernard Shaw put it in a, I think it's a play, Heartbreak House, uh, when Shaw says, when the angel of death sounds his trumpet, uh, the pretenses of civilization are blown from men's heads into the mud like hats in a gust of wind. And, um, you know, so we're not arguing that the death anxiety can account for uh, everything that we need to know uh, about prejudice or ethnic conflict. Um, we just insist that without considering the role uh, of existential concerns, that you won't be in a position to understand these phenomena. Mm. Uh, as I, yeah, that's interesting. As I sort of, I mentioned to you uh, before we went live, I spoke with Eric Kuglansky recently, and uh, he, I think, very wisely enfolded the concept of significance into his work on cognitive closure and understanding extremism. And I think there, there are definitely a lot of these sort of existentialist or, or death-related themes there in terms of attempting to establish some kind of security and significance in, in your cultural worldview, right? And so I'm wondering if you see a place for this sort of concern for uncertainty sort of being a, a part of this concern for your existential safety or trying to get rid of thoughts of death. Um, yeah. well, great question. Um, now, if REA were here uh, and all three of us were talking, um, first, I would agree with you. Um, uh, and second, I would give them a hard time, as I have over the decades, <laughs> uh, for, in a sense, um, appropriating the constructs that we've used and, and renaming them. And I, I'm making that argument not to be petty uh, so much as I think it's confusing. Um, his notion of personal significance we call self-esteem. Uh, um, and, um, and, and that's fine, uh, but I, I do think it creates uh, unnecessary confusion. And we're not that psychologists, though, are... Um, it's just our nature that we, you know, in order to be personally significant, we want to name our own phenomenon. All right, be that as it may, you make a good point. There's been, uh, there's been some very fine studies. Uh, we share students um, and uh, in, in the sense that some of our students have gone and worked with him and vice versa. There's been some very fine work showing uh, that his notions about uncertainty uh, interact uh, with our mortality salience paradigm. Uh, on the other hand, we take respectful issue uh, with people, not REA, but some other folks uh, who have said, well, you know, what really bothers us uh, about death, it's not really death, it's uncertainty in general. Uh, and we think that that's um, quite frankly silly. And the point that we make is, okay, so let's say that I told you, Stephanie, that right after we get done talking, I'm going to hop on a plane and I'm going to come to Oxford and I'll bring a gun and I will kill you tomorrow at noon. Well, now you're absolutely certain. Are you going to feel any better about that? Um, 
And so our, our, our point is that if, there, if we were all literally immortal, that uncertainty would not bother us because it would mm. be psychologically inconsequential. Yeah, I tend to think, I like to think of it, I think, a little bit in the, as a nexus of the two in, in terms of our inability to manage threats to our existence, right? And so sometimes uncertainty is a threat to our existence. Right? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. We, we feel it as a threat and death is always a threat, right? Or usually. I, no, so. ab- yes, absolutely. In that sense, I, I agree entirely. And in fact, uh, you know, in that sense, yeah, like it or not, because it's true, uh, you know, we are perpetually uncertain by virtue of uh, being, uh, you know, death is um, always uh, potentially um, impending. You know, uh, you know, again, to be silly, we could get done talking and either of us can walk outside and, and get smote by a comet or, uh, you know, a disgruntled a postal worker with a gun that won't happen to you in the UK, but could happen over here. Uh, you know, you could wake up with a headache and it's a golf ball sized malignant tumor. And so I, I think you're right. Um, uh, but our, our point, uh, uh, and we're kind of stubborn on this front um, is the, is to insist that conceptually it, it's what it's death that is underlying all of these psychodynamic influences. I just found a ladybug on my microphone. Nice. <laughs> uh, I was like, what is that? Okay. Um, all right. So then my question is, and my, my question, I always ask this question. So then what do you think the sort of unique implications are for our modern world, right? I, I would assume, I would infer that you think death has been central to human psychology for a very long time, but yeah. the way that we manage it has changed a lot over the years, right? Like hopes of heaven, I think used to be a lot easier to access than they are now, right? And so yeah. does this sort of, has this been amplified in recent decades? Or well, Yeah, I think so. And again, a great point. In some ways, we argue things have not changed in, in the sense of we're still driven by the same concern about not dying. And uh, that, uh, the various manifestations of that concern are similar, uh, but... Uh, but not entirely. So you make a good point. You know, Nietzsche at the end of the 1800s says, God is dead. Uh, but most people didn't read the rest of the paragraph where he says, Christianity has become unbelievable. And his point, and he was remarkably insightful, he said it's going to take 200 years of chaos uh, before uh, humans, if we ever do, you know, come to terms with that fact. And you're right, uh, although um, uh, the majority of people on earth still believe in literal immortality, uh, but it has declined in Western Europe, uh, not in the U.S. so much. But, you know, instead of going to heaven, what's taken over is the prospect of not dying. Uh, We spend more money uh, on cosmetics to at least look like we're not dying than we do on social services. Um, there are people that take hundreds of probably not particularly effective vitamin supplements to extend their lifespan. You can get your head frozen for $70,000 after you die. 
down so you could be reconstituted someday like the frozen burrito. Uh, you know, once we've developed the technology, people are working on having our identity uploaded to Google Cloud. Um, and then you don't have to have this annoying carcass. Well, those are all thinly veiled death denying strategies that are all ultimately probably doomed to fail. Um, so that's one point is that, but yet, you know, we've been looking for fountains of youths and elixirs of immortality uh, since antiquity. So that's not changed. Um, also, what's not changed is that, um, you know, in times of historical crisis, uh, when, uh, you know, there's a lot of upheaval, um, people tend to embrace what Max Weber called, the sociologist Max Weber called charismatic leaders, so seemingly larger than life individuals who proclaim that they're singularly equipped, often by divine ordination, uh, to keep people safe and to rid the world of evil. Uh, and uh, so when people ask me, well, you know, so what? You know, what can this help us explain uh, that would be tough to otherwise? Uh, I'm like, well, uh, it can help us explain Hitler and more recently the orange Hitler, Donald Trump and Brexit and all of these populist movements. And uh, I say that not as a political diatribe, but as uh, an empirical contention. So in 2001, President George W. Bush um, had the lowest approval rating in the history of presidential polling uh, two days prior to September 11th. And then three weeks later, after he said, I, I, we will rid the world of the evildoers, and I believe that God has chosen me to lead the country at this perilous time, he has the highest approval rating. And, and sure enough, we did a bunch of studies showing that Americans all over the country did not think very highly of President Bush unless you reminded them of death first. And, and then they liked him a, a lot more. All right, well, fast forward to 2016, uh, and, um, you know, Donald Trump uh, comes down the elevator and saying that, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you from uh, the hordes of negrotinous brown people steaming across the southern border uh, uh, where there's terrorists parachuting into Buffalo to steal our chicken wings and rape our daughters. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm the only one uh, that can keep you safe. Uh, and it, it, it frankly didn't matter to half of the people in America. Uh, they were appalled. Uh, you know, they're like, Trump uh, is a vulgar, sadistic, vindictive, pathologically narcissistic, sociopathic, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, misogynistic, functionally illiterate, pussy-grabbing, cheese-doodle impersonator. And they're like, this fucking guy is, you know, just grotesquely ignorant, shockingly incoherent. Uh, and congenitally uh, in, uh, incapable of not lying. Uh, well, uh, but to another half of America, uh, they not only didn't mind that, uh, they were enthralled by uh, this kind of blustery, uh, pseudo-successful business person claiming that he's going to keep us safe by making America great. 
Well, be that as it may, and again, if this sounds like a political diatribe, it's because it is. I consider him uh, only slightly less dangerous than Hitler because he's lazier and less intelligent than Hitler. Mm. But the empirical point is that we did the same studies. And sure enough, in the control conditions, uh, our participants liked Hillary Clinton more than Donald Trump. And they said they intended to vote for her more than they did Trump. All right, but if we reminded people that they're going to die first, uh, then their support for now President Trump increased dramatically. Wow. Moreover, we did other studies where we asked people to imagine a mosque being built in their town, or we asked people to imagine an immigrant moving into their neighborhood, and even if they were in neighborhoods where there were no Muslims or immigrants, that was enough to increase death thought accessibility, and that in turn increased American support for Donald Trump. And so Trump doesn't need to remind people of death at his rallies or flash the word death on his website uh, uh, subliminally, although who knows, uh, but all he needs to do is to constantly rant about immigrants and terrorists, which is precisely 